All right, you found the New Species Podcast, and you thought, I'm going to listen to some of these early episodes. But did you know that this is more of a current events kind of podcast? So I suggest you actually start with some of the later episodes, and then if you really want to, come back and listen to some of these early ones. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Adam Cassette. Adam is a vertebrate paleontologist and an assistant professor of anatomy working in the College of Osteopathic Medicine at the New York Institute of Technology in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He's here today to talk to us about his paper that was published in the January issue of Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. In this paper, he describes Botosaurus fustidens, a new fossil species that is a cousin of the American alligator. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Thank you for having me. First, did I say that name correctly? Sure. Botosaurus fustidens, Botosaurus fusidens. So the name is actually uh, the fusidens part, the specific epithet of the name, actually means club tooth or bludgeon tooth. Uh, so fustus, I believe is how it's pronounced, is Latin for club. Okay. And it does a great job of describing the, the shape of the teeth in these animals. Oh, it's actually, a yeah. Well, descriptive term for the, for the teeth. Yeah. Example. And we'll get to that here pretty quick. Let me let, let, let's let's start off here, just kind of backing up just a little bit. I just want to make sure I said it correctly because uh, scientific names are always challenging for people, including I don't think people know. Sometimes for scientists, uh, when we're going outside of our area, you you, you just got to kind of guess how they're pronounced. Sometimes it's I mean it's Latin. It's 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 a dead language, so it, it can be difficult for all of us. Uh, so this is a a new species of of alligator and specifically a new species of caiman alligator. What's the difference between an alligator and a caiman? And, and I understand that it's not actually an alligator. It's just kind of a cousin of American alligator, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. On, on the surface, alligators and caimans, they look, they look really similar and they, they share a similar evolutionary history. They have similar lifestyles and that's also why they look similar. They are one another's closest relatives and, and they belong to a group of crocodilians called Alligatoridae. So I can understand why you'd call it a caiman alligator. And they do share a common ancestor, and that ancestor probably lived at the end of the Cretaceous in North America. So in other words, they live alongside things like Tyrannosaurus rex. And How many millions of years ago is that? Uh, about 60 million years ago. Uh, are, are, are we talking about when this specific species lived, or are we talking about when now, what you were just talking about dinosaurs was? What you were just talking about when you were just saying, like, the, the common ancestor was alive then, right. and then we'll get to right, when right, right. this one lived. Yeah, so that would be at the end of the Cretaceous. The end of the Cretaceous ended uh, approximately when, when the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. So that would be about 65 and a half million years ago. But this uh, common ancestor actually lived slightly before that. So it would be sometime maybe between 70 and 80 million years ago. We're not exactly sure um, of when that would be, but the phylogenetic trees, they, they indicate that as well as the uh, genetic information. When we're talking about 
the alligators earlier, alligatoridae. So as far as living species go, there's, there's two species of alligator. There's the one in the Southern United States, the one that we're, we're all familiar with, the American alligator. And then there's another one in China, the Chinese alligator. Those are the alligators, but we're talking about caimans though, right? And there are about six or, or more species caimans and they're all found in, in Central and South America. And we know that all the alligators and the caimans, they're, they're related to one another in a big group called alligatoridae. And caimans are generally, the, at least the modern caimans, are generally smaller than the, the two other species of alligator you mentioned, right? So the, the Chinese alligator, alligator sinensis, is actually not very big. Um, and there are some species of caimans that are quite large, uh, like Melanosuchus is, is quite big maybe like 15 feet long. Uh, the American alligator, though, is probably the largest of, of all the living species of gators and gator relatives. So, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're 15 plus feet when they're, when they're really big. When I was saying earlier, they, they are differentiated from one another. They're, they're kind of differentiated yeah. using bits of, of anatomy as well as genetics. And, and they do look similar. They look similar because they live similar lifestyles and they eat similar things, but you can actually differentiate them using key pieces of anatomy. And that's going to be primarily in the skull and the posterior part of the skull, as well as differences in the teeth and, and osteoderms, which are little bits of bone that you find sure. in, in the skin of these animals, as well as bones in the hips can also uh, be differentiating uh, between the two. But yeah, so, if, if you look at them, they, they look really similar because they live similar lifestyles and they do they do similar things. But if, if you've got an eye for it, you can actually differentiate them. So thanks for the clarification there on, on all of that. That that helps a lot. So when our, our people out there listening get to this, they'll understand that, uh, you know, we call everything a gal an alligator in our, in our typical terms. There is actually a difference even between an alligator and a crocodile. And I think most people are kind of aware that they may not be able to, to tell you what that difference is. Uh, but they- between an alligator and a crocodile? Yeah, most people probably There's can't tell you off the really top of their head. really easy way to tell the difference it's between the shape two. of the nose, right? They have right? to have their mouth closed. They have to have their yeah. mouth closed. And you can look at the teeth. So when an alligator has its mouth closed, its upper teeth are going to be the only thing that's exposed. But when a crocodile closes its mouth, both the upper and the lower teeth are going to interfinger between one another. And you'll be able to see all of their teeth with the mouth closed. And generally, the, the snouts are also different shapes. So if, if you're standing above the thing, I don't know why you'd want to be doing that. But but if you're above it, you can actually see uh, differences in the shape of the snout. So with the American alligator and its very close relatives, the snout is going to be blunt. And with the um, true crocodiles, like the Nile crocodile, for example, or the American crocodile, because we also have a species of crocodile that lives in Southern Florida, um, they're going to have more like a V-shaped snout. And they're going to have one of the teeth of the lower jaw fit into a notch in the upper jaw. There are, there are ways to tell them apart but to, to your average lay person, it's just, you know, they're all crocodiles, but there are specific differences and these things do live different lives and they, they have different lifestyles. So this new species that you mentioned, it was a little older than 60, 65 million years old or so, but. No, no, no. That was, that was the common ancestor. This, this one's. Oh, right, right. 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one's approximately 60 million years old. About 60 million years old now. Yeah. Now, where yeah. did you find it and how did you find it? So there's actually two specimens that the new species is named after. And they were both found in Big Bend National Park in Texas, uh, really close to the border with Mexico. Yeah, they're about 60 or so million years old. And they lived right after the extinction that killed the non-avian dinosaurs. And at that time in that place, the environment was very similar to what we'd expect to find there just in cause the, the American alligator living in and the rocks that they were 
profound and they tell us a really vivid picture of their lives and they, they tell us that the animals live near a river that would flood seasonally kind of like you know most rivers do today and uh, from the fossils in those rocks we know that they live alongside fish and turtles and we postulate that's probably their food because that's what the modern species would eat as well and I have spent time in, in the field digging up fossils but I didn't find these specimens they're actually found in the 1960s from faculty at the University of Texas. And the fossils, after they were found and excavated, they were transported to the University of Texas at Austin. And then they were housed in the Texas Memorial Museum. And then they just they sat there for a while. It was relatively uneventful uh, time that they spent at the Texas Memorial Museum. And they just they essentially sat there for a number of decades. And that, that's kind of indicative of other trends that are going on in paleontology. So most paleontologists over the last probably 20 or 30 years, there's been a real explosion of interest in crocodilians. And there are a lot of fossils waiting to be rediscovered sitting in collections that people have, you know, in some cases forgotten about. And people are becoming increasingly interested in crocs because they have a really long evolutionary history. It's very well documented in the fossil record. Crocs are pretty robust things. They're likely to be fossilized. They live in floodplains oftentimes, and those are great places to be turned into a fossil. And now, wait, 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 wait. Why, why is that a good place to be turned into a fossil? It's a low energy environment. So, so what do you mean it, by that? It's basically, there's a lot of sedimentation that happens there. Uh, you don't have a lot, the, the decay process is a lot slower. So it's a lot better for being able to, to bury something in the silt and have it stay there rather than be completely metabolized or dissolved away. So you get a better chance of getting the, the skeleton of that thing and, and even maybe some of the scales or whatever preserved in that sediment. That's what you mean by this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you hit it right on the head. So it's, it's a low energy environment. So the sediments that are there are really fine grain. And it's essentially, if you die in a floodplain, you're covered with silt and mud and things like that. It's like a nice blanket and you're covered up by, you know, successive floods year after year after year. And you've got this nice blanket of fine grain sediment sitting on top of you. And you're, you're more likely to be turned into a fossil in that case than if you were buried at the base of a waterfall where you've got water beating on you every day and, and rocks falling on you and things like that. You'd be crushed to bits after maybe a year, let alone a million years. That yeah. And I, I want to back up just a little bit to what you just said there and what you'd said at the beginning of that. And that's that there's a lot of things just sitting in museums that people collected many years ago. And either they weren't an expert in that area or they didn't recognize what it was and they just put it on a shelf. And, and we see that. I just want people to understand that's not unique to vertebrate paleontology. That's true for people going out in in collecting modern specimens, we find this, I've, I've made the comment, I work at a small teaching college and we don't do a whole lot of research here ordinarily compared to a lot of my colleagues, but I've said I can make an entire living out of just combing through museum specimens that nobody bothered IDing and finding new species all day, every day. There's so many of them out there that people collected and they just didn't have time to do it, or that's not their area of expertise. Or in your case, they didn't even have quite complete fossils and they were like, well, you know, maybe we'll come back to that someday. And then it just gets put on a shelf and forgotten. And that's, that's kind of what happened here, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, somebody will find something, like you said, either they're not quite sure if it's something new or it's not their, their field of work. When you go hunting for fossils, if you're a croc expert, you're not hunting just for crocs. You're hunting for fossils. You're looking for those rocks where you think you're going to find crocs, but you find everything else that was preserved there. So if, if you're out looking for fossil marsupials or something, and you find a bunch of crocodilians and you're like, I don't know what to do with these, but you found them. 
So you're going to excavate them and you're going to bring them back to the museum that you're associated with. And if there's no one there to describe them, then that's where they sit. So there are a lot of species waiting to be discovered that have already been found, but nobody has made the insight that there's something new. Not yet. So did you go to this museum in Texas then and just run across it by accident? Or how did, how did you run across this specimen? There's two specimens and they were actually sitting in the University of Iowa paleontology repository. And that's where I actually found them and described them. That's another thing that, that happens with fossils is that they are, sometimes they can be loaned out. So if you have an expert uh, that would like to look at them, uh, they'll be loaned out and um, they're not always returned in a timely manner. Um, that kind of hints at another story of another species that I was describing um, called Dinosuchus, which was another big crocodile. And I was looking for one of the specimens and I couldn't find it anywhere. It wasn't at the, the repository that it was supposed to be in. And I ended up tracking it down and I tracked down a note. And that note was from 1973. So somebody basically checked it out, kind of like you check out a book from a library. Uh, they had it loaned to them. And then that's where it sat. It wasn't in its, its normal repository. It, it was very difficult for me to track down. But these things, they, they move around. They know where they're at. You yes. said there were two specimens then in Iowa. And were they loaned from different places? Or was there one brought in from Texas to meet one that had already been in in Iowa? <laughs> like a blind date or something? Yeah, kind um, of like somebody had said, like, wait, I kind of recognize this. <laughs> so they were, they were there on loan. And uh, both of them were, I believe, found in successive field seasons. One was found, I think, in 1969. And the other one was found uh, a year later. Um, in, the, in the same place, in the same formation, in right? In the same place in the same rocks and they look the same therefore they're likely the same species right if they're they're found in the same time in the same place it's 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 unlikely that there are going to be two species of something that look almost exactly like living in the same time and same place. So um, that, that, that gives some indication that they are of the same species. But you, you don't have a complete fossil for these, right? Like you don't have like the, the entire skeleton of it. You have pieces of the skeleton, right? Yes, that is that is correct. So finding a complete specimen in the fossil record, it's incredibly rare, but we don't actually need the whole, the whole skeleton to determine whether something's a new species. How do you go about determining that it's a new species? Partial, partial skeleton or not uh, with something like this, right? I know how to do right. it with certain organisms, but with something like this, how, walk us through the process really quickly. Okay. How did you look at this and go, I, I think this is new? Um, well, in order to determine something's new, all, all you need is a preserved part of the anatomy that, that differs from another known species in some sort of meaningful way. And I'm, I'm actually lucky to work on a group of animals that has, that has living relatives and we can actually use them to determine the, the amount of variation that we would expect to find uh, within a species and between species. And then we use those insights to determine whether or not the differences between fossil specimens are they're likely to represent different species. And for this species, Bodasaurus fusidens, we do have two specimens. And when I say we, I mean science. There's there's two specimens currently known, and they were used to name the species. And one probably represents an adult; it's much larger, and the other it's much smaller, so it's probably a juvenile. And both have portions of the, the skull and the jaws preserved, and the larger individuals ha has uh, limb bones and vertebrae, and they they are incomplete. But I know that they're Caymanines due to aspects of the posterior skull and the 
So the back, the back of the skull, you can actually see in this, in the teeth, the way the shaped and that sort of thing kind of help into that. That's correct. So little bits of, of, you know, meaningful anatomy that I can use to differentiate uh, these different groups. And I I know that they belong to Botasaurus, a genus based on the teeth. And then there's a U-shaped indentation between the eyes. And then I know that it's a different species of Botasaurus. And I described uh, another species, the most complete specimen of that species of Botasaurus, Botasaurus harlani in 2018. I know that it's a different species of because the U-shaped indentation uh, between the eyes is much deeper in the new species and the bones making up the inside margin of the jaw, so the part of the jaw that faces the tongue, they're different. And sure. vertebrae in the new species has a groove on the ventral surface. There, there are a lot of insights that you can get from an incomplete fossil. You could put it into a larger group and then you can start putting it into smaller and smaller subgroups. And then you can decide whether or not it's something different based on other species that you think are closely added allied to it. Well, it's, 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 it's the complete picture. It's a whole suite of things that you're looking at. And, right. and it does take an expert eye. You have to look at thousands and thousands of specimens to understand what real variation looks like between species. And like I said earlier, I am very lucky that we have modern species from the group that I work on. Other people who study uh, completely extinct species that, that don't have any modern representatives, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. But you can actually look at the range of variation that you would expect to find in modern species and essentially extrapolate that fossil species, their ancient relatives looked and lived um, in, in a fairly similar way with some caveats. And, and speaking of some of this then, lived and worked in different ways, you you had alluded to this before. Uh, you had also described another species just a few months ago that was the size of a, as it was reported in the popular press, uh, the size of a bus and eight dinosaurs, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, so, so what, spe- what species was this now? This is, uh, We described the entire group. So this group is called Dinosuchus, which is a really excellent name means terror crocodile and it would be pretty terrifying i think if you were a dinosaur waiting at the water's edge having a drink and there is a 35 or so foot long uh, crocodile something maybe 10 to 15,000 pounds this is an ancient uh, american alligator relative lived in texas uh, as well as um, parts of the southeast and um, the eastern seaboard it would be terrifying so you can imagine a, a dinosaur coming down for a drink. Something's lurking under the water. The dinosaur takes a drink. Dinosuchus grabs it, pulls it underwater, drowns it, or does a death roll, dismembering it. Terrifying stuff. But what I did so, was so this is the now. So you're talking 35 feet. You're 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 hitting the kind of length for Sue the T Rex, right? In that yes, around? yes. Yes. Just so people understand, like the Sioux is the largest T-Rex ever, ever discovered, or the second largest now, I believe. At the Field Museum, yes. Yeah, it's at the Field Museum, it's the main one there, and she's like 30, 30 or 35 feet from snout to tip of the tail, right? Isn't that somewhere yes. in that range? Yes, one of the largest uh, T-Rex specimens now. So you're talking and, about and something that swims in the water, stealthily waits for you to come up to it, and then reaches up and can grab something probably as big or bigger than it, do that little roll, drag it to the water and drown it when it's, if it's in or whatever and and probably be quite successful i'm imagining correct so it would have been one of the largest if not the largest predators in its specific environment in its specific time and place we actually have evidence of 
Dinosuchus bite marks on something called Albertosaurus. Albertosaurus was a relative of Tyrannosaurus rex that lived um, a couple million years uh, before Tyrannosaurus rex. We have bite marks from Dinosuchus. They're, they're a large meat-eating dinosaur, a relative of Tyrannosaurus rex with Dinosuchus bite marks all over them. So, they're, so you're saying they're a terrestrial or a land-based apex predator that got taken out by the apex predator that lives along the water land interface. That is correct. Yes. That's amazing. That's fun. So they, they, they would have functioned, uh, Dinosuchus would have functioned in many ways, um, like what we would expect a modern crocodilian to, to do. So if you can uh, think back on those famous uh, National Geographic videos where there's like the wildebeest uh, running across Kenya or Tanzania and they're getting to the water's edge and then they're snatched by a Nile crocodile. We have evidence for that behavior, you know, going back quite a long time. Uh, so Dinosuchus would have been terrifying, 35 feet long. 10 to 15,000 pounds, teeth like killer bananas, very cool stuff. How big is Botosaurus in relation to that? Like what was its total length? And you're, the new species that you've described here that we're talking about on this podcast. Not, not a very big species, uh, probably something like eight to 10 feet long. Um, they have a blunt snout. That blunt snout and the morphology of the teeth, they're probably eating probably something more like a turtle or, or others have even postulated that they might've been um, specialists eating invertebrates like mollusks. But essentially in the fossil record, unless we have direct evidence of feeding traits it can be relatively difficult to determine what it is that they were eating. Like the American alligator, which eats anything, most anything is on the menu for a crocodilian. Uh, they're opportunistic predators. If it's near them and it's edible, they're eating it. I feel like I could talk to you about this stuff all day just because it's so fascinating to talk about, you know, like the, the fossil record and the, some of the great things that we find. But one of the things that people always want to know is, you know, why is it important for people to know about these fossils? Why is it important that we need to know about this in the for the, for the general public to know, just besides the fact that it's really cool? I think fossils more generally are, they're important for a number of reasons. I think the most obvious reason is that they're really cool and the public loves them. And they are an excellent way for science to be spread to the public. And they're, they're a great way to explain evolution in a way that people can see. Like they, they can be there in person seeing it at the local museum or they, or they can see a fossil on TV or, or read about it in print. And the idea that so many amazing animals have lived and gone extinct and have lived lifestyles that are totally unlike any living species without the fossil record, we, we'd have no idea that these animals lived and went extinct um, millions of years ago. And it, it tells the, the story of evolution over the Earth's history. And there's also this idea idea, even within science, among some scientists who themselves don't actually utilize data from fossils, that fossils are no longer needed to determine evolutionary relationships among living things. And, and, and asking, asking questions using modern groups to describe past events, it doesn't work well. And you actually have to sample closer in time to major divergences. And most of the best data is going to come from morphological data collected by paleontologists and this, this misconception that techniques for determining evolutionary relationships should only rely on genetic data. I'd argue that, that evolutionary relationships can be figured out using anatomical data in isolation from genetic data, but not vice versa. 
In determining evolutionary relationships using molecular biology, it actually relies on fossils. Calibrate the molecular clocks right. and fossils oftentimes themselves are going to preserve suites of characters that are not found in modern species. So using fossils to determine evolutionary history is going to paint a much more vivid picture of life on Earth than if they're absent from our, from our analyses. So I actually think the path forward is going to be combining molecular and morphological analyses. So combining the DNA with the anatomy and that's becoming more common. In, in the case of the group that I work on, Crocodilia, we have both DNA information from the living species, and we have lots and lots of fossil uh, anatomical information. And, and the findings from the fossils, they, they agree with the findings from the molecular biology. So it's it's two um, bits get, of data. You got two lines. Of, yeah, good. you got two sets of independent data that are that are agreeing, yeah. which is good. That gives us an idea that we're not so crazy when we make these assertions. Correct. Right. You, you kind of hint at something here, and I want to bring this up again, at least again for you and I, we talked about this beforehand. You are a professor of anatomy in the College of Osteopathic Medicine, uh-huh. right? And you're working on, so just so people are clear on this, this means yeah. that you're teaching medical students to be medical doctors. Correct. You're an anatomist who's working on crocodilids. Some of the things that we can learn, we can actually, you know, how, how do you take this knowledge and bring it into the the medical field like how how are you training medical students using the kind of things that you know i think this is going to be a fascinating answer yeah so this is a question that comes up every single year and um, during our orientation we show pictures of of our research to the students before they've even taken a gross anatomy lab where they where they dissect cadavers in order to learn the anatomy to begin their training to be to be doctors so I always get a question and it goes something like, if you teach human anatomy at a medical school, why are you studying crocodiles or vice versa? And, and my response is, it's quite simple and it, and it requires uh, evolutionary thinking. So if you can understand the anatomy of a human, you can understand the anatomy of a crocodile because we both share a common ancestor. And although that ancestor, it lived millions of years ago, we have a common ancestral plan that was inherited from that ancestor. And, and, over yeah, and, and, the... and I point this out to my students, right? So you, 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 if you just look, for example, at the human arm and you go from the shoulder to the fingers, you got one bone, two bones, many bones, long bones. And when you put that out right next to you, say you're a crocodiliad or a bat or a bird or even even a horse in a modified way, you see that same architecture over and over again, right? Exactly. Homology. So yeah, that that's the word we use for that is homology. It was passed on to us, but it's been modified due to our different lifestyles. So a bat flies and a crocodile lurks in the water and a, a human, you know, they work at a desk all day. So... <laughs> So we, we've been modified to our different lifestyles, but all those parts are shared. And if you can understand the anatomy of a human, you can understand the anatomy of a crocodile, if you know what you're looking for. And I, I think that teaching anatomy also makes me a better paleontologist because I get to work with soft tissues on a daily basis in the gross anatomy lab. And those are, you know, not, they're not preserved in a fossil, but I well, can make and, connections. And one of the important things that's, that's great for an anatomist to be able to do is they have to understand function, right? Yes. And so if you can understand the basic function based on that, the, the the basic structures I was just talking about, and you can look for the modifications in those. Like, okay, so how is the crocodile different than what we have? You, you alluded to this just a bit ago. Then how is that making it better suited for its environment? And if we even look at modern species, we can do this same thing, right? The application, I don't think people understand of, of anatomy, particularly the, it's, there's a 
famous history of vertebrate paleontologists working in medical schools doing anatomy like this. Neil Shubin, Correct. for example, at the University of Chicago is always a famous example currently. There's a lot to cross apply and it gives you a good perspective so that if, if for example, if you're a medical doctor and you are talking to someone about the, like a, like an athlete and they're wanting to know, you know, why, why is it, you know, that I have these certain problems or I can't actually do this sort of thing. And you can start to say, well, if you actually look at how your arm is, is literally built compared to other organisms that have the same type of thing. These are some of the limitations you have. These are some of the advantages you have. And we're actually able to see that and, and kind of use that a, across a broader spectrum. Would you agree with that or? or... Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And, and I, I do bring that up sometimes uh, if, if students talk about pathologies that, that humans suffer. So we suffer pathologies of, of the ankles and the knees and the hips and lower back because we are bipedal. We walk around on two legs, but ancestrally we are quadrupedal. And I think that, that looking at human health and pathologies that humans suffer, um, looking at that in isolation from our ancestral history, I, I think that's actually a, a great disservice to, to medical students. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we, that we teach them about crocodiles or something uh, during their first year, but um, we are a modification of a modification of a modification, so on and so forth, of an ancestral plan. And uh, evolution isn't perfect. Maybe uh, some form that we take on, it is advantageous for one activity, but it's, it's a hindrance to another. Understanding uh, anatomy from an evolutionary perspective, I think is, is, is really important. And it's also kind of fun, I think. And, and you teach the same thing to your students. So it's, it's a great way that, that people can see the evolutionary history in their own body and the limitations of it. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on this today. I, I sincerely appreciate it. It's been fascinating learning about something that's well, well outside of my own personal territory. And uh, hopefully I didn't mess it up too much as far as my pronunciations and interpretations of some of your work. And I, uh, I really appreciate that you came on the, the podcast and allowed me to find out more about these fossils. And, and hopefully some people who listen to this will be able to learn a little bit as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again, Adam. I appreciate it. Once again, Adam's paper is in the January issue of the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. And the paper's title is, A new species of Botosaurus from the Black Peaks Formation of Texas indicates an early radiation of North American caimanines. If you'd like to learn more about Adam, please check out his bio at nyit.edu forward slash bio forward slash A-C-O-S-S-E-T-T and go there to contact him so that you can get a copy of the paper. Thanks for listening to New Species. Next week's guest will be Dr. Rosemary Gillespie from the University of California, Berkeley, and she'll be talking to us about new species of happy face spiders from Hawaii. Until then, thank you for listening. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.